We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over Hey everyone, welcome to Femidish. This is a podcast about food through a feminist lens where we elevate the stories of women by celebrating their unique abilities to nourish themselves and one another. My name is Sandy and I'm here tonight with my co-host Hope. Hey Hope! Hey! And we are here with Emily as well. Hi, Emily. Hi. Emily Contois is an assistant professor of media studies. She researches, teaches, and writes on food, identity, and health in the U.S., popular culture, and media. So, Emily, thanks so much for being on with us tonight. Where are you calling me from tonight, and how has life been for you recently? Thanks so much for having me. Um, tonight I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, where it is very hot and humid, um, but otherwise things are okay. <laughs> That's great. And have you been quarantined in Oklahoma? Have you been uh, Yes, um, I've been home basically by myself quarantining since mid-March, um, so I am starting to feel that. <laughs> um, the walk with my dog in the mornings is the only time I really get out of the house where I don't have to wear a mask and can be out in the fresh air, and now it's so hot that that's hardly delightful, so I'm, I'm missing this transition to hot, hot summer. Oh, man. Well, we're a little jealous here. Hope and I are in Maine, and um, it was kind of hot a little, like a week or so ago, um, but we definitely don't get as hot as places in the Midwest, so we're a little envious, I think. At least I am. No, no, no. Don't be. I would, I would trade back for my Boston Providence days any day. <laughs> yeah, I lived in uh, southern Florida for a while and quickly found out I am not a hot person, like a hot weather person. <laughs> I always thought I would be. But I, it's not for me. I need the seasons. <laughs> no, I want it like 90 degrees all the time. Um, I guess if I was at the beach, maybe if I was just in the middle of, no offense to Oklahoma, maybe if I was landlocked, I might not like the heat as much. Maybe I, maybe I need the ocean. <laughs> I think that's the difference for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell us about your field. Um, what exactly is your field of study and how did you get into this type of work looking at gender and food and media? Yeah, so my PhD is in American studies. Um, so that brought together, you know, three different fields. So I did the, the cultural history of sort of media and American consumer culture. Um, I studied, uh, you know, critical perspectives on health and food. Um, and then a field in women, gender and sexuality studies. Um, so it prepared me really well for um, the research and book project that I'm working on now. Um, and then all of that built on two other master's degrees that I did before my PhD. Um, I always joke, like, what else could I do but be a professor with all these grad degrees? Um, but I did a master's in public health, focused in public health nutrition at UC Berkeley. Um, and then the gastronomy program at Boston University, I got to train with really amazing folks like Warren Velasco and Carol Cunahan and Rachel Black um, to really start my life in food studies. Um, so I was able to build my PhD on top of that. 
Um, and then going on the job market, there are no jobs in food studies. There are no jobs in American studies. Um, but there, interestingly enough, are really fascinating jobs in media studies and communication. And so I'm really lucky that this department wanted to take a chance on me. Um, and I've really found a wonderful home in media studies. The place where I am right now thinks food studies is media studies, that food is a medium um, that connects right humanity to one another. Um, and then in a more traditional sense, I also study, you know, various media forms, um, whether it's digital media and social media, um, or things like food television, magazines, um, some, you know, cookbooks, right, these older school sort of traditional media forms. Um, so it's been a really nice home to bring my training and my interests um, all together. And I get to teach really fascinating courses with some really great students. That's really, that's very cool. Um, I teach here at a university part-time here in Maine uh, in, their, in our food studies department. And it's very cool to see all the different um, backgrounds that the other professors have coming into it. Um, some of them are really like production-based. So they have backgrounds in you know different types of farming and um, the histories of that farming and the cultures that did those kinds of farming. Um, some are like planning backgrounds and a little more, um, you know, like uh, civic life when it comes to food and things like that. So it's just, it really is a testament to food studies. You can have so many different types of backgrounds and come to the same place of landing on food. The media studies is also really interesting that way that you're often working with uh, folks who produce film or, you know, work on documentaries, um, that, that those ties between critical consumption and production, um, the marriage between theory and practice has been really fun to dive into across food studies and media studies. When you said media, I was thinking of like filming and communications. And so when you said like food as a medium, that was different for me. Like, oh, right. Okay. Media is medium. But I was truly just thinking media like, like movies and film. Yeah, I think that's how most people often think of it. And so it does, it blows my students' minds a little bit when I'm like, well, what happens if we think about it much more broadly than that? Um, how how can we think about seeds and soil, air, right? All these sort of pieces of our food system, how are they also tied together as a media circuit? Um, how can we think about food through these different sets of tools? Um, so there's lots to think across food and media studies that surprised me. I didn't know that when I first jumped in and that's been really exciting. That's very cool. Yeah, it makes me think of the, you know, when you go to culinary school, you're studying culinary arts. And so an, an artist would have a medium. And so essentially what you're saying is that culinary is the art, the food is your medium as a culinary arts student. Yeah, that's definitely another way to think about it um, from the food studies, like the practical side of culinary um, sort of production. That's also an art form that's rooted in history, has all sorts of forms of apprenticeship. They no, I think there's tons to go with there. Thinking about the um, the language of like how food studies is looked at, like it, it, like I think about it as food systems and there are some like academic programs and graduate degrees and stuff that um that say it's a study of food systems and that's one way of talking about it but then you have food studies which is how a lot of like you know it was either gastronomy was how you would study food academically um and then it moved a little bit to food studies um which just saying you're studying food that could be all kinds of things and then i think the next wave of that might be um for academic programs to talk about okay that like we're now studying food systems so instead of just studying food is that like you're studying all the systems and everything in the different sectors that go into that. So it's just even how we talk about food and how we study it has changed over time. 
Yeah, Ali Hope Alcon gave a really interesting keynote at one of the Graduate Association for Food Studies conferences, um, where she sort of looked at the literature, the programs, you know, of how sort of food studies scholarship has sort of bucketed itself. And so there's definitely the food studies piece of sort of society, culture, sign symbols, which is often where my work is housed. And then she thought not only about food systems and thinking more about, um, you know, sort of rural sociology, agricultural sciences, right, how that all comes together, but also thinking about food justice um, and its overlaps with environmental justice, with um, prison reform and incarceration politics, like how we think about all three of those ways of thinking about food coming together um, in really generative ways um, that, you know, food studies is always supposed to be, you know, this house, you know, this table that can get longer and longer so you can invite everybody to dinner and be able to sit down together. And even within food studies, we've had, you know, this sort of splintering off. And so I'm always trying to think, how can we still come all together um, to be able to share tools and resources, um, methodologies, theories, so that we can think deeply about food, not just food as a lens to look at other things, but also like taking food itself really seriously. I love that. I was exploring your website, and I have to say one of the things that I was telling Sandy I loved about it um, was that you, what's the word, you document some of the assignments that you give to your students and um, show their work and their the learning process and like your thought process about assigning these projects. Um, and also in your notes to us, when we were setting up this interview, you said that you were decidedly feminist in your teaching style. And so there's two things I loved about that. First of all, what is a feminist teaching style how does that differ from a traditional teaching style and also you're talking about sharing these um sharing the maybe you could word it better sandy because you're also a teacher but kind of like sharing the curriculum and sharing the way you're approaching food and how you're studying it and how you're asking your students to look at it i'd love for you to just kind of elaborate a little bit on your teaching style and how you try to impart this curiosity of food to your students no, I love that question. Thank you for your comments on the website. Um, that For me, a feminist teaching practice is about not just the willingness, but an investment in sharing power in the classroom with my students. Um, so their experience matters. Um, and I'm not going to be um, the sort of stereotypical, stereotypical professor um, up at the front of the room, um, you know, at a lectern, just, you know, spewing out knowledge that I then expect students, right, to regurgitate to me in some sort of an exam, an exam or, you know, a paper that has a prompt, um, that the majority of my classes are hugely discussion-based, um, where it's a 50-50 exchange um, in what we each bring, in the direction of where the class goes. Um, and so in sharing those assignments, part of what I'm always experimenting with is how I create assessments that give my students space for agency, for going in directions that genuinely interest them. Um, and so they can and communicate their knowledge in ways that resonates deeply with them, makes sense for them. Um, and then, of course, a part of that is, you know, who we assign, what voices we center, um, that I assign lots of women, that we read tons of Black women in particular, Indigenous women, um, that we're thinking about. I think that's what I've loved about food studies, that it's been a field that resists the idea of creating a canon. Um, and so I haven't felt so trapped by that as perhaps folks in other fields. Um, but there is 
is still so much space and need to diversify our syllabi. Um, and for me, as someone who studies gender and food, for a long time, the only thing you would talk about, right, was like women's special relationship with food. And like that was gender on your syllabus. Um, and so to be able to talk about masculinity in its various forms um, and how it attaches to men and to women, um, to think about transgender food politics, um, that there's so much for us to be able to think deeply and critically about with students. Um, and then the other reason that I openly share, um, you know, assignments that I'm coming up with and what's happening in my classroom um, is a feminist practice for me of sharing all of the resources and knowledge that I have the privilege to accumulate um, and to be able to share those, um, whether either with other teachers or with students learning about food outside of the realms of the academy, right? Everybody doesn't necessarily get to come pay tuition and take a class with me, but anything that I can put online for for free, like you bet I'm going to do it um, to be able to spread that knowledge as far and wide as I possibly can. So I'd say that like those, two, those are definitely two elements um, of my feminist teaching practice. Now, I like to hear you talk about um, gender being more than just women's special relationship with food, because Sandy and I have actually kind of been struggling about um, to have a feminist food podcast. Like, where do we draw the boundaries of who to bring on and what voices to share. And like, can we have a man on our podcast and it still be a feminist podcast? <laughs> yes, I think you totally can. If that man is a feminist. Um, I think one of the thefts who I profiled um, in my hometown of Billings, Montana, where I grew up, um, I wrote about, you know, sir, he had a practice, right? Where everyone who was trained front of the house also worked in the back of the house, um, that he paid them well, that they had really low turnover. Um, and that outside of the work that they did in the restaurant, people who worked for him were artists and photographers and dancers, right? They had all these other passions and the restaurant was simply a space where they could all come together and create something beautiful. Um, and so he was a white man, a white straight man running a feminist restaurant and how he diffused power and how he trained people and how he respected people. Um, and so I think that's part of why I'm so heartbroken that that's a restaurant that COVID-19 killed, um, but oh. they just couldn't make it, right? And he was so smart and so great. Um, but to your question of thinking about, you know, as a feminist, as a woman, like, how do you do this work? Like, I definitely talk in the introduction to my book, um, which is Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture, um, that I approached this project about food and masculinity not wanting to put masculinity and men at the center of my research. Like, white men is not my unit of analysis. What I'm interested in is power. And that's okay. what a feminist analysis is always looking at, right? Inequitable distributions of power, how you can um, reconfigure power across different groups. Um, so what I'm interested in unpacking is white heteropatriarchy. And in seeing how the food, media, and marketing industries play with those frameworks of power actually taught me a ton about what they think about women and femininities, um, particularly as I looked, you know, side by side, how they were advertising things like weight loss programs to both men and women, um, that then you can really see these distinctions that they draw. And so it's not just the idea that food is gendered, but things like flavors 
and appetites, the way we eat, the body shape we're supposed to have, supposedly, the way we move through the world, um, the way we make our feelings known. Um, those all come to be tied up in our food cultures, in our body cultures. Um, and so those were some of the things I was really interested to interrogate um, in this book, and particularly thinking about how advertising and various media forms represented those various relationships to power. There is one example that I, I, I can't stop thinking about while you're talking because it just like got to me so much. I just wanted to gouge my eyes out when I was watching it. Um, it was about, did you ever see that um, documentary Game Changers that was like really popular at the beginning of the year or like end of last year? I don't think so. Tell me about it. It was about, uh, it was about a, a vegan diet and what, and what it does for your body and for health. And it, it was on Netflix and it got really popular for a while. And a lot of people were changing to a plant-based diet. Um, and they had these, um, and it was clearly marketed for just like really buff men that were like athletes. And they brought on these like elite athletes across all different sports. And they brought on some women too, you know, just like really, so that you could be a really hard athlete and still be a vegan. They brought on an NFL player. They brought on the guy that won, you know, was like, has lifted the most, like deadlifted the most in the world, right? Run that has the record for that. Um, you know, uh, the guy who was um, uh, narrating the documentary, I think was um, like a UFC fighter or something like that. I might be getting it wrong. Anyone listening is like, no, that's not right. But it's something like that. And caught me so much was that they do these little experiments with the guys during it and they 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 test them like their blood their you know the levels in their blood and they test things before and after they eat a meat dinner or a vegan dinner and then they do another test where they give them a, a, a quesadilla or something or a burrito with meat and then the next night a vegan quesadilla and then they put on their penises they put on little um, like sensors to see how much, how hard they get at night. If they get a hard on it. What? Oh and, my God. It, and that is how they marketed that you can still get a hard on as a vegan. I couldn't. I didn't know this was a question. I, I could not believe that that was really, that that was truly like a Pete and they had a doctor on there and this was really something on there. I mean, it could not have been more overt that they were using this like, Oh, you know, ve being vegan and makes you weak, but look, we're going to show you that you could still have all these like super manly, um, uh, super manly, you know, traits on here. And I was, I was just shocked by it and people, they bought it, they, you know, pun, no pun intended, they ate it right up. <laughs> oh my word. So I don't write about veganism, but I definitely <laughs> look at like what you're talking about of this idea of like feminization, right? So like food, like for marketing scholars use the term like gender contamination when you're trying to take something that's gendered a particular way and then market it to the other gender. So it can work in an empowering way, right? Like if you're marketing whiskey, which is, you know, for whatever reason, stereotypically thought of as this masculine liquor, that if you market it to women, like that's empowering. But if you're trying to market to men like diet Coke, um, that's not going to fly. Um, and so the case study that this scholar looked at was the Porsche Cheyenne, um, the SUV, um, and men like lost it when uh, women, sort of stereotypical soccer moms, like loved that car. And so these men were so upset to have this car that was the symbol of masculinity and of, you know, midlife crisis be taken over by, you know, by women 
Um, and so this idea that masculinity has to be protected from femininity and from feminization um, is what I'm looking at in the book, right? How did the food, media, and marketing industries tackle that perceived threat when they're trying to sell men cookbooks, diet sodas, yogurts, and weight loss programs, and to watch food television? And so it's exactly as overt and frustrating <laughs> and ridiculous as what you're talking about, right? Like the fact that like penises even come into it, right? Like Weight Watchers definitely had, a, um, Charles Barkley was their uh, spokesman for their sort of 2011 gigantic, you know, digital launch. Um, and there is a, a commercial where he's at a podium and you hear him just listing off euphemisms for penis, right? Um, oh and he's just going off and going, and then the voiceover is, you know, for every, you know, so many pounds you lose, right, you gain an inch, right? So this oh, idea no. that, like, even as you lose weight, like, you're not losing your manliness, even as you, you know, maybe restrain your appetite or change the way that you eat, like, you're not going to lose this, like, material, physiological, anatomical, you know, symbol of your manliness. Um, and so, no, it's... <laughs> Wow. Sometimes it was really frustrating to spend 10 years looking at evidence like that. Like, number one, I don't think men are that dumb as consumers. And number two, like all these strategies are also like really derogatory um, in, in the ways that they subordinate women and femininities in their efforts to be able to target men. And is, is that why it's so frustrating? Like the immediate reaction is like very cringy and eye rolly. And is that, is that why, like what, what that it, it feels like you're, I, I know that it feels like wrong and weird and laughable, but is it because it feels like you're like, wow, what a, you know, what a lame concept to uh, like associate all these like negative feet, like that female traits are negative. Like what, what, what is going on there? Yeah, so I think there's a couple different things, right? So one is, you know, this classical dualism, you know, from Descartes, of the idea that we have this glorious masculine mind and then this feminine gross body. So there's always this sort of distinction between the world of the mind and the world of the body that comes to be understood as gendered. Um, and so the way that food typically operates, you know, stereotypically in a culture like the United States, is the idea that preparing food, cooking food, shopping, cleaning up, right? Like all of that labor, all of that knowledge also comes to be gendered as feminine and the expected daily duty of women. Um, while cooking in the public sphere, you know, chef versus cook, right? Comes to be understood as masculine and powerful and something we should pay lots of money for. Um, and then with dieting, right, the idea that you're going to reform yourself, that you're going to restrain your appetite, you're not going to eat these foods that are understood um, to sort of construct masculinity, um, that weight loss in particular, it all sort of comes to a head, these ideas about how we manage ourselves, our bodies, our ideas about food. Um, and so in Part of it is this backlash to be able to maintain the status and authority of a white, straight, middle-class, cisgendered masculinity, right? That there's been a lot to destabilize that authority. And so, of course, there's going to be this backlash to it. Um, and so feminism um, is one of those things, right? So these resurgences of toxic masculinity, of misogyny, um, we've seen all of those in, you know, the last 10 years and then especially in this last 20 years, which is sort of the period that I'm looking at in my book. 
Um, I love I love hearing all of that uh, those thoughts articulated because there's lots of times where I'll see something or you know read something and I, it, it feels like it feels wrong or weird or like oh like that's not that's not right that doesn't sit right and I'm not always able to like immediately think of a well thought out um, reasoning or logic why you know so even asking you like why am I feeling that way can you <laughs> say this back to me as someone who has you know is a scholar on this topic. Um, and, you know, if it, it, it feels it, it, it's good. It, I like that. And I like I like hearing those articulations. So thank you for that. You're so welcome. Trust your gut. You're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and along those same lines, um, you you've written before about this idea of like the sexy male chef. Right. And about how he's like hot and sweaty and powerful. He's in the kitchen and, you know, it's like fame and allure and um, and all that and how women are not afforded that same status when they're chef and you know some of that chef that's like in you know the um celebrity chef or like how it's in like books and media you know like film and stuff um and that women you know when they're the chef they don't have the same like you know sexy allure and it's it's just different you know they have to maybe be more masculine or like the boss kind of thing and they don't get to be have that fun like celebrity that the different kind of status um, so we'd just like to, you know, have you chat a little bit about that. And then uh, along those same lines, think it made me think about like, well, when it comes to women and like cooking and all of that, there is like a, a, an allure for that of women to um, be really good cooks for their man, right? So like, that's always a positive thing that guys say like, oh yeah, she can cook and that's good. And quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach kind of thing. So it's like a positive trait when women can cook, but only in the service, only if it's in service of man, of the man. Yeah. So to the first part, I'm like, who gets to be a sexy chef? Like that kind of goes back to power as well, right? Because if you think about someone, you know, like Jada De Laurentiis, right? Like she certainly gets to be a sexy chef, but in an objectified way, right? Where she's always sort of the victim of the male gaze of how she's sort of portrayed in her kitchen um, and of sort of who she's serving and what her food's about um, versus being able to be, right, this um, I think the article you're referring to, right? Like I was analyzing, you know, a really bad romance novel, but I was really interested in how like the role of the chef as the romantic lead, like how and why that worked um, to sort of cultivate erotic desire. Like why does that sort of function the way that it does? And that when we see that in celebrity female chefs, celebrity woman chefs, um, that they are pushed into a different box because of these dynamic dynamics of gender still playing a role um, in how the understanding of chef as a role, as a title, as a position of power still continues to connote primarily masculinity. Um, and then to your point about cooking at home, um, scholars, you know, particularly like Carol Cunahan, um, Psyche Williams Forsen, right, have certainly written about how women do and can use their domestic food work um, at home as a source of agency, right, of how much effort you put into your cooking, who you feed first, how much time you spend, um, you know, what else you're sort of using your creative labors for, that there's definitely space for women to be agentive, empowered, and powerful in the home. Um, but I'm also, you know, in looking at, you know, dozens of cookbooks that were targeted directly to men um, and then comparing them to um, cookbooks that were written for women. For women, you often hear that language um, of, you know, making sure you cook to be able to hold on to your man, to please him, to nurture him, um, and that feeding your man well 
well was a part of holding on to him, right? That you had to please both of his desires in the kitchen and in the bedroom to be this good wife. Um, and we hear that sort of advice, you know, continue to be given, you know, in some religious communities as well, of like, that is your role as the diminutive wife. But what I found looking at men's cookbooks um, is that the ability to feed a woman wasn't to hold on to her. In many cases, um, it's to seduce her and then maybe, you know, get rid of her afterwards. That even in these cookbooks, you know, with recipes from really well-respected chefs, there's still this garbage language about, you know, breakfast in bed, you know, leading to a thank you, right? Or, you know, that you know you've really done something when you're making breakfast um, for a woman who came over the night before and is still with you. Um, Mm -hmm. So this idea of cooking men's cooking being about seducing women, not necessarily about nurturing them, um, looking after them, um, you know, sort of having that kind of a role that's expected of women is definitely a disparity that I've seen in how we talk about um, feeding people across these lines of gender. Wow. Wow. And you're, you're totally, you're totally right. That is, that is absolutely how it I think how it gets portrayed a lot. And also thinking about how it's almost like there's um, the amount, like you were talking about, amount of effort and the fact that a man would cook for you at all is like, that is that is a step up. That is like, wow, look at all those awesome things, like all the great qualities and traits where it's almost just like expected and inherent of a woman. And that if she doesn't cook, then that's a mark against her. Like baseline is that you cook and you cook well and you, you know, on all these things in service, like what you were just saying. But then if a man does it, it's very, it's, it's such a, wow, look at, you know, that's so many points, right? That's so, such a positive aspect and not expected of them at all. Yes, absolutely. I love the sociological studies that are either about married couples or like married couples with children, um, where the man often thinks, right, that he's doing like 50% of the work and like really being an awesome (laughs) feminist husband. And it always turns out, right, that the woman is doing way more work um, in, you know, all the mental labor of like preparing to cook something, right, versus, you know, ordering a pizza or even actually cooking. Um, And then to your point, the way that men's versus women's domestic, particularly food labor is perceived, that when a woman does it, when a mom does it, um, that it's just expected, right? Nobody says thank you. No one thinks you're this amazing woman. No one thinks you're this extra wonderful catch. But if you're a man or a dad who does it right, it's a celebration or it's a hobby or it's something really special. Um, And so thinking about how, you know, even as we've seen some shifts um, in, for example, you know, women being the primary breadwinner, you know, earning more money, having more education in a family. Like we're definitely seeing some of those dynamics start to shift. Um, But in so many of those cases, we still see that woman continuing to do a desperately disproportionate amount of food labor um, and other domestic labors in the home. Um, So this idea of the second shift, this idea of the inequitable domestic labor women are doing, like we have not cracked that puppy. Like there is still so much going on there that's infuriating. I'm chuckling because I'll I'll just say that I am a married woman to an awesome feminist husband, and I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll switch gears a little bit. He did actually make dinner tonight, so. (laughs) But I'll switch gears a little bit, and I'll I'll I want to talk about this blog post that I read, and I'm I have no hope of recalling who wrote it, um, but it was written by a woman, and it was just on this subject where. Um, she was totally overwhelmed with life and her husband was kind of like, well, what can I do to be helpful? And she's like, I just need you to make dinner. 
tomorrow night or tonight or whatever it was. And so he says, yeah, of course I'll make dinner. And they go about their day and then it's time for him to make dinner. And he walks in the house and he says, well, what am I making for dinner? Oh, I've read, I think I know when you're talking about, I think I've read this. Yeah. And she, she just totally lost it because for her to make dinner meant making the grocery list, going to the grocery store, deciding what was for dinner, coming home, prepping dinner, making dinner. And for him agreeing to make dinner literally meant that she was going to do all of that. And he would just chop the onions and braise the chicken and put it on the table. Like it, it didn't involve all of that mental labor that you mentioned. It was just sheerly the act of taking ingredients from the refrigerator and making them edible. Exactly. Exactly. There's this complete unacknowledgement of all that other labor. Um, so thinking about like food and especially this like idea of feminism, because it's something that we are exploring all the time on the podcast and, you know, we're, we're not neutral ourselves, you know, we're not the arbiters by any means of feminism. Like we're still figuring out our own issues and, um, in some of the, like what we think and, and unpacking and, um, uh, you know, uh, relearning and unlearning lots of things as well. So um, what I love about doing these interviews and talking with people, especially, you know, coming from a scholarly or academic, but even not, you know, just having like a, a different perspective about feminism and can explain it in lots of different ways is it's just, it's all about learning. It's all about approaching uh, problems different, about approaching thoughts different and situations differently. Um, and Hope, you've mentioned before this idea of like sharing power or versus seizing power. And we've talked about power a little bit here tonight. So I just, I, I like that dichotomy because it see it, there's a, there can be language sometimes when we talk about, you know, like creating equality or equity um, is like, oh, we need to, you know, like gain more power and get more power. And then, so seizing it, but then there's the, like, it's really actually more about sharing power, like what you said, Emily, about with your students. And, um, and that seems like more of feminist thought in theory. So can you, can you comment on that for a minute about the sharing power versus seizing power? Yeah, I think part of it, I can understand it from both perspectives, right? Because if you are seeking equitable power, representation, you know, agency, the ability to do things um, from a patriarchal society that does not want to give it to you, um, I think sometimes seizing is what we're doing, right? Sometimes in the political process right? Like we're reallocating power through legislation, through changes in policy, um, right? When we think about um, fair and equitable wages, for example, like <laughs> the sharing model hasn't worked well there. Um, but I think in our individual relationships, in the communities that we're in, in the more intimate spaces that we're in, when we think about how to enact a feminist practice in our everyday lives, um, they yeah, the model of sharing makes a lot more sense. Um, but I think it depends upon who you're in partnership with. Um, I just spent the last week in this really like life-changing um, training um, on, you know, fighting anti-Black racism, particularly in the academy, right, which rewards all sorts of white supremacist behaviors um, and encourages us to be very individualistic, to be very competitive um, in how we move forward in our careers versus being collective and supportive and, you know, being able to change structures. And so I think to take it back, you know, to feminism, if we're thinking, you know, one at a time about sort of gender 
gender and power. And then, of course, we can complicate it through an intersectional lens to think about various systems of oppression that then intersect with our experience of gender. Um, whether or not we're in an opportunity to share um, or to wrestle power um, depends on if you're working with someone um, who recognizes the power that they have. Um, and I think in thinking about whiteness in particular, so many white people don't recognize that we have a racial identity, that it has a long history, um, that whiteness itself, you know, outside of our individual sort of intentions, um, has been a part of systems um, of white supremacy, of um, the oppression of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Um, and so similarly, if you're working with someone who can't acknowledge their whiteness, or you're working with someone who can't acknowledge the power of their heteropatriarchy, like that requires a different set of tools. Wow, very relevant right now, of course. Um, I was just gathering my thoughts for a second because like Sandy said, it, it's very relevant and so many, um, so many subjects have seemingly become more complicated, not because they weren't always this complicated, but just because these issues have become um, more, people are more aware of them and the intersections of, of different forms of oppression and, and the different experience, lived experiences of people. And um, so I'm just going to take a minute <laughs> to, to gather my thoughts. But I, what I wanted to talk about was... Um, and it's okay if you don't like my answer. Like I'm answering no, no, no. I'm like <laughs> this place of deep reflection where like, I wish it was all just like, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya, right? And no, I, think, I, think, um, I think you're right because I was, a, I would have said that we need to share power. I was through previous discussions, I had gotten to this place where I was like, oh, well, it's not about seizing power. We don't want to just create a mirror image of patriarchy. Um, that That's not really a solution if it's the same system with just like a woman president or women governors or women leaders. That doesn't really seem like a solution. Um, but to get from point A to point B is more complicated. So how do we seize power from people who don't want to relinquish power either? So, you're, so you were kind of discussing people who maybe aren't aware of their power, but also there's the people who are aware and who don't want to share it. Um, and so how, how do we seek like a more equal, a more feministic future um, where we can share power and we can get to a point where power can be shared in a very equal way. But also to do that, we have to seize power from people who are not willing to let it go right now. And that just, I don't have any answers for that. So that's why I was just kind of mulling that all over in my head and trying to come up with something more succinct than what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> No, I hear that it's hard. I think what I'm trying to do in the book in a lot of ways is to look at how like advertising our consumer culture, the media around us, like does have power to create, represent and circulate these ideas about who we are and who we can be. And so there's huge potential in what that could represent. 
And then what my book shows is that, well, instead, what they did was they represented this dude who, you know, was just like going to slack off and not care about anybody else, um, but also be able to resist the norms of masculinity just enough um, that was sort of self-protective for his way of moving through the world during the sort of Great Recession era, um, when the ability to sort of meet these, you know, typical qualifications of masculinity, like assertiveness, like breadwinning, um, like being competitive and achieving your goals, right? Like a lot of those things weren't possible during the recession. Um, and in many of the years after sort of the notion that we recovered economically. Um, and so in thinking about um, the power of the media around us to represent ideas of who we are, um, that I'm calling out the advertising agencies by name, right? Of who designed right. these campaigns. Um, yeah. And then sort of ruminating in the conclusion of like some of these, you know, like Wyden and Kennedy, right? Like they made the dream crazier ad with Serena Williams that like brings me to tears every time I see it, right? About the power of women um, to dream bigger and go for it. Um, but they also created, you know, the Velveeta shells and cheese, that guy, you know, right? Who's just so easily awesome, right? So they can create both of these representations. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but in thinking about um, how do we bring about change, right? Critique and public shame are two strategies <laughs> that I'm testing out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And yes, like call them out, make them, make them just address it. You know, like if it, it might make people squirm a little bit sometimes potentially, but you know, but calling it out, like and encourage those people to address it and either you know, walk it back or, um, or start to recognize like what you were saying before to really, um, to have someone be able to, to share power and even have these conversations with them. They need to know they even have it. They need to know that, um, they need to even recognize that. And well, when I think of power, I think there's a couple different ways of defining that word. Like, you know, you could have power, like how Hope said of, you know, uh, like positions in government and roles and like actual leadership, but also more like nuanced forms of power, like how much space a person is taking up in the room, you know, how much time you spend talking, you know, it could be a man in a meeting or something, you know, that's kind of something that gets troped a lot is, you know, the, the men that are talking over women all the time. And, um, you know, so understanding that like, okay, I have the power to seed this conversation to somebody else, seed like C-E-D-E seed um <laughs> conversation to somebody else you know I have the because uh, otherwise you know it would just be given to me or like if someone you know if they're in a um if they're in position of leadership to be able to um I guess I guess I, I'm not articulating that as well but there's just there's more nuances of what quote power is that isn't necessarily just like tangible leadership power um and you say that you talk about that in your book you know that's what you're addressing is looking right at the the structures of power. Um, tell us about this book. What, what, what is it? Um, what is it about? And what did you hope to achieve? Yeah, so Diners, Dudes, and Diets looks at a particular type of gender, a discourse of gender that I call the dude. Um, and so the dude sort of aligns himself with hegemonic masculinity, right, which is a culture's um, sort of dominant, accepted form of masculinity at a particular time and a particular place um, that then subordinates all other forms of masculinity, um, as well as sort of femininities along the way. Um, and so the dude celebrates the slacker, 
right? The average or the even below average guy. And so he's birthed from a particular socio-historical context that I call the Great Recession Era, right? That stretches a little bit before and a little bit after the actual moment of the Great Recession. Um, and so the dude is in response to a host of social, cultural, political, and economic changes. And so the dude was utilized by the food, media, and marketing industries to be able to sell feminized products to men without impinging upon their masculinity because they could do so through this sort of cool nonchalance of the dude. He was so uninvested um, in anything that he pursued um, that then being um, interested in food or cooking or going on a diet, right, were all things that then wouldn't impinge upon masculinity. So I'm interested in deconstructing um, the inherent whiteness of the dude, how he upholds these ideas of racial hierarchy in United States culture. Um, and then this idea, particularly of, you know, straight, right, this heteronormative patriarchal system to be able to show how it works and then how it was replicated and circulated through these various media industries. Um, so that's a little bit of what the book's trying to do. Wow. Wow. I, I was thinking of a couple different examples, I feel, of commercials and movies and marketing. I mean, I feel like I feel like I also know those people that they're <laughs> I think I know a couple dudes. Yeah, and to your earlier point in thinking about you know, that men are sort of socialized, right, to take up space, to um, advocate for themselves, um, and that women, right, were socialized, like, absolutely not to do that. And so it was so fascinating to see how, how diet sodas, yogurts, and weight loss programs were marketed, like, reinforces those kinds of ideas, that for women, what you consume is always about this, like, purposeful pursuit of lack, right? A lack of appetite, a lack of difficulty in maintaining this thin body, right? This body that doesn't take up space, that doesn't have an appetite, that expresses no desire. While for men, as they're marketed things like diet soda or high protein yogurts or going on a diet, it's all in this language of what I call zero, this anti-diet zero, that for men, it's empowering and positive and it's all about gain. While for women, it's about lack and what you'll lose. So you can see how like patriarchy sort of um, plays out in how um, men versus women are target marketed by these various industries. That makes a lot of sense. The, the lack and the, and the gains, you know, you see a guy with a hearty appetite or, you know, crushing all kinds of food. And that's like what you're rewarded to. That's what you're supposed to do. And, um, you know, it's never, it's, it's only as a joke or as like, it meant to be addressed as something that's odd or different if you do see a woman doing the same thing. Exactly. And then it kind of cuts both ways, right? That like a woman who eats a lot with a hearty, voracious appetite, right? Like, ooh, we judge her in a particular way based on social conventions. But then a man also gets judged, right? If he doesn't eat very much, if he doesn't have that hearty appetite, right? That there's all these assumptions about his masculinity based on what and how he consumes as well. Um, and so I think that's what's interesting. Like I say, you know, that like patriarchy oppresses all of us not all of us to the same degree or in the same way, but oppresses all of us, right? It's not good for men either. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a study I once read about um, 
that like young men, like college aged men actually have really high rates of disordered eating, um, except that it's not in the, I guess, the traditional senses of how we might think of disordered eating. So they're not necessarily bulimic or anorexic. And I'm going to forget the technical term for it, but the disordered eating involves replacing too much of actual food with supplementary mm. products. Um, like powders and vitamins and things like that because of like the diet, you know, muscle building culture. Um, no, absolutely. I think a lot of the studies that I read, right, was the idea that, um, you know, the statistics of sort of young women and anorexia, like it's equal when we look at like men and young men and the abuse of steroids, right? Again, that it's about creating a body of lack or a body that's built up. Um, and to your point, I think the other studies that I found so fascinating are the idea, um, I'm sure you guys have heard of like normative discontent to sort of describe women and their relationship with their bodies. Um, the idea that the culture that we live in, you know, with the thin ideal held up as this normative standard um, that's inherently white and middle class and all these complicated things, um, that because we live under that, women are just always upset and disappointed with their bodies, right? Like, it's not even special to feel that way, right? It's normative discontent. Like, that's just what it is to be a woman, to hate your body. Um, and what... <sighs> these studies had found is like, that's actually the same for men, right? And not just for young men in college in that sort of transformative moment, but men when they are boys, men when they're young, men when they're middle-aged and men when they're right across the life course that like men feel that crummy about their bodies as well. Um, and so part of some examples that I have in the book and thinking about the dude, when we think about, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe that we've all been subjected to for almost 20 years now, um, that we've had these, you know, muscular male bodies put front and center often in you know tight uh, body hugging costumes um and that even um superhero figures that we would qualify and call a dude right like in guardians of the galaxy or ant-man right that they are these sort of slacker dude guys but they're also um, incredibly ripped right their physiques are so incredible um so I do talk about Chris Pratt in particular, right? As sort of his transformation to take on his role. And so then when he goes back to Parks and Rec, they literally have to write a line of dialogue into the show to explain his physical transformation. And so it's this, you know, <laughs> one line of dialogue joke, right? That he stopped drinking beer for the summer and lost 50 pounds. Um, <laughs> and so thinking of how men as well, right? Are held up to these unreasonable ideal body type standards. Um, and so I have a section where I talk about, you know, the rise of the dad bod, which was this, you know, strange little media phenomenon starting in 2015 that's kind of hung around with us. Um, and so when we think again about how the dude, um, you know, resists some sort of strictures of hegemonic masculinity for himself, but remains complicit in the overall structure of power, the dad bod also does that, right? That it's this um, man body type that resists, you know, this ideal that's, you know, lean and works out and you know feels this you know looks like the rock right this completely un unachievable ideal for your average man um but he does nothing right to acknowledge actual mom bodies that make babies and go through all sorts of changes it does nothing to dismantle diet culture it still upholds an idea of white supremacy of who gets to have a dad bod and have it celebrated versus it being you know an unhealthy body that's then othered um so thinking about how the dude dude food and the dad bod 
all work together um, in concert, you know, within this mix where men are experiencing um, these increasing anxieties about their bodies, what they look like, how they should care for them and what their relationship to their bodies should be. This idea, right, that like health um, and sort of a resistance to like health behaviors is a part of hegemonic masculinity. So we're seeing this right now of like men who refuse to wear masks, right? This idea that it's girly or unmanly to wear a mask, right, to protect yourself and others from the spread of COVID-19. Like that is absolutely the same uh, framework of decision making um, of why men won't eat fruits and vegetables um, or wear sunscreen um, or drive fuel efficient vehicles. Right. Like we've seen that across, you know, multiple different areas of men's lives, that this expectation of what it means to be a real man, like hurts men, hurts women and hurts the earth. Yes. Yes. And you've and mentioned before- coronavirus all around. <laughs> yes. And we'll all die from coronavirus because of it. Yeah. Uh, it's like this, it, um, like you said, it, it, patriarchy hurts everyone. You know, it's um, it's. And recognizing that is um, can start to be a road to equality potentially for everyone. You know, like yes, you can express yourself and wear a mask and drive a fuel efficient car and eat vegetables and be healthy and care about your body and like you know and do all, and do all that stuff because you want to and you care and that's okay and that's and you're not like flouting some um, you know idea of what it means to be this this you know big thick masculine man that it actually it's 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 preventing some men from expressing themselves fully in the same way that it would um, prevent females from expressing their selves fully, because maybe they, you know, want to be a, a, um, a certain type of woman and they want to, you know, look a certain type of way or something. Um, and they can't, or they feel like they can't, obviously. Uh, so it's not that they can't, they just feel like they can't. Um, so it really does, it, it prevents everyone from expressing their, themselves truly and, and probably just, you know, being the best versions of themselves. Exactly. So the idea of like, feminism being this promise of equality and justice and like equal access to joy, right? To just be able yeah. to be your full self without judgment, without risk, you know, without, um, you know, all of that being curtailed. That like, that is a part, like a, the feminist agenda isn't just about, you know, women bringing down men. Like it's about so much more than that of being able to bring justice and joy forward for everybody. Yes. I like that. I wonder, can we start marketing that to men? Can we start marketing it that way? That look, feminism is good for you. Too. Look at all this great stuff you'll get to do. This is, you will like this. This benefits you. <laughs> exactly. I think the, the episode of Ugly Delicious I was in, I think Helen Rosner says that, right? That like patriarchy, you know, that it is this, this, you know, that, that modern day feminism is this um, proposition that's also very good for men. Um, it just hasn't been marketed very well that way. We need those same marketers that were on all those other terrible campaigns. Yes. Put your work <laughs> to good purposes. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, when we've talked about power a couple times, like, um, and, and who we give power to and how the world perceives um, people who have power, like thinking about the dad bod. Um, it's, almost, it's interesting that like it, be, that happens, I think, because guys get to call those shots you know they they get to say okay like dad bods are cool now and this is how we act and they're the ones that have the power and authority to do that like i don't know if it would have been as well and coolly received if you know to, to say oh i mean mom bods would be amazing if that was as cool as you know what it seemed to be 
like universally accepted as a, as a quote dad bod is, but um, it's just interesting that like guys get to do that. They get to say, this is, this is acceptable now. This is mainstream. This is what is desirable or fun or cool now. They, because they have that, that power. No, exactly. Those are the moments where we want to seize it. We want to seize <laughs> that power. <laughs> yes. Seizing versus sharing. Sharing is nice. <laughs> sharing is caring, but sometimes you got to take it. It'd be hilarious um, if that's where we ended. <laughs> seize the power. Well, I do actually, I have, I have a very hard hitting question for you. So um, I have been looking at, you know, some of the things that you've been writing about and you write about um, Guy Fieri, right? And about um, uh, his, you know, how he's become popular and why and like everything behind that. And I just really need to know something from you. Should we change the town of Columbus name to Flavortown? <laughs> I saw that petition. Um, I think, like, Flavortown, I think I wrote a little bit about this. Like, I could have written a whole book on Guy Fieri. Like, that chapter <laughs> is so big in the book and that I had to take pieces out of it to publish other articles because there was just so much there. And so in one of those articles that is not in the book, I talk about, like, what is Flavortown and where is it? Um, and so the idea that it's Flavortown and not Flavor City or Flavor Land or Flavor World... Like, like is actually really specific um, in the work that Flavortown does to be able to create this mom and pop main street conservative and yet multicultural space that he creates on diners, drive-ins and dives. Um, so Flavortown, um, like, do we want that to be an actual physical location um, when it has had this huge symbolic imaginary meaning? Um, I think it's like, you know, the sort of like downer side of thinking about it. Um, but I think to to speak a little bit to it, like I, I end that chapter um, with a subsection that's called like the rise, fall and rise of Guy Fieri. Um, and that when he gets this zero star poor review in the New York Times, like he's this flavor town flop, um, you know, in the world of, you know, fine dining and sort of what counts as good food and one of the best food cities in the world. Um, he is recuperated. He is purposefully rebuilt um, and as this good dude, this good guy savior. Um, and so I find that really fascinating that as we think about um, the incredible violence of Christopher Columbus and of wanting to remove statues or to um, better contextualize that history, to think more critically um, about his um his role in imperial projects, um, Guy Fieri isn't completely innocent in that. <laughs> when you look at diners, drive-ins, and dives and how it, you know, functions as a traveling adventure food show with a white, straight, cisgender, you know, financially really comfortable guy going out and discovering, right, the food all around America. Um, so that's such a downer answer, right? Like a part of me is like, yes, we name it. That'd be freaking awesome. Um, but the other part is like, I don't think we can say that Guy Fieri doesn't have a tiny bit of Columbusing as a part of his food media empire. Right. Like Guy Fieri is not the answer to anti like exploitation of other cultures and other foods and other people. Unfortunately, no. But <laughs> I find it really fascinating why people think he might be. 
Um, and so that's the work, right, that my book's doing. I'm not really answering any real questions. I'm interested at that, like, level of the persona, right? Why is he so polarizing? Why do people love and then revile him? Because it's really equal and extreme on both ends of that. I was going to have to say that I was pleased with your answer because I am not a fan. (laughs) And I seem to have like these very strong reactions one way or another to any of the um, food celebrities out there that I either I'm just like, oh, they're just such a great person or I just strongly dislike them and sometimes for very minuscule reasons. (laughs) I am pleased. I don't think it should be. I don't think it should be Columbus. I think there might be something to be said for having it changed, but I'm not a fan of flavor tab. <laughs> and for all of our listeners out there, they're like, what the heck are you guys talking about? Um, there's a petition that has gone around, um, which, you know, very rightly is um, as we are starting to come to this reckoning, this awakening, um, you know, much heightened, more heightened attention on some race issues than, um, than the country has had in, you know, a very long time. Um there, people are thinking about okay. Well, what what are these symbols and what are these you know monuments, whether they're physical or otherwise, um, that might uphold some white supremacy underlyings? And one of them is the town of Columbus in the state of Ohio. And there's a you know, and so obviously referencing Christopher Columbus and some and a lot of the things that uh, Emily just mentioned. Well, there was a petition that got started somewhere that said that instead of naming the town after Christopher Columbus, they should name it after someone else who was really famous, who was from there, like not Christopher Columbus wasn't from there, but, you know, someone who was from that town and that was Guy Fieri. So the petition that got tens of thousands of signatures was to officially rename the town of the city of Columbus to Flavortown, his little like (laughs) moniker, his, um, you know, his little catchphrase that he says on all of his shows. So um, whether or not that happens, we'll, we'll yet to see, but it uh, was getting some serious traction. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that um, wonderful, uh, uh, eloquent answer to the question of should Columbus become <laughs> Flavortown? That's what I think. I fear he is so good to think with. Like you think that he's just, you know, a catchphrase on fire, but there's actually so much going on there when you look at him as a media construction. Like I did, Absolutely. I loved, loved, loved writing about him. Um, <laughs> I think that we you know we're nervous, right? Like, do we want to send the book to him? Like, what would he think of it? I don't know. Um, oh, definitely. No, it's <laughs> funny to think about. But I've definitely, yeah. right, I've been to his restaurants, I've eaten donkey sauce, I've eaten trash can nachos, like I write about all these things and I've eaten them, I've been to those spaces and like, I get the magic, like I understand it. Oh, that's, I haven't <laughs> even heard of any of those things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know how good a trash can nacho does, but again, it's probably, it's going right along the lines of the, it seems like of that, that dude, um, uh, you know, a person that you're a personality before of like something that's like kind of careless and but cool, you know, without uh, trying too hard at the same time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, hey, Guy Fieri, if you're out there listening, we want to hear from you. So please <laughs> tell us what you think about Flavortown and white hegemony and Christopher Columbusing when it comes to food. We want to know. <laughs> so, Emily, I've like I said earlier, I was poking around on your website and now I'm definitely going to have to get back on it after we um, end our conversation this evening because I need to know everything about Guy and beyond. <laughs> I think I recently added a PDF to that one too, so you can download it. <laughs> oh, nice. nice. Um, so your website, there's so much great information on there. You're such a prolific writer um, and your Instagram is also very active. 
what is your goal? I mean, you put so much out there earlier. You mentioned that you just really um, enjoy sharing what content you can for free as far as educational content for those who may not um, have the privilege to attend classes like the ones that you teach. But, you know, they're, they're just well curated and um, just packed full of information. So what is your website? What is your Instagram? And also, you know, what are your goals with those platforms? Yo, thanks so much. Um, so the website is emilycontois.com. Um, and then Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter are all just at emilycontois. Um, so that's E-M-I-L-Y-C-O-N-T-O-I-S. Um, and I've really thought critically for a long time about not just being, you know, this idea of, you know, the public scholar, um, but also the scholar in public. Um, that I take really seriously the fact that we're in a moment when, I think it's like 50-50, right, of whether people think higher education is worth it, right? Are colleges going in the right direction? Um, that there's a lot of um, misinformation and misunderstanding about what professors do, about what the roles of scholars should be. That um, I think for me, part of it is to live my life publicly, to be able to show what it's like to be a researcher, to be a writer, to be a teacher, Um to be able to be as transparent and welcoming about that um, so that it's accessible to others, but also so it is understandable to others. Um, and then for sharing the resources, you know, like every every conference I get to go to, right? Like I write, I try to write something about it to be able to share what I learned with others. Um, if folks listening are, you know, graduate students or thinking about being a graduate student, you know, I applied to go back to graduate school from the professional world. I didn't have the mentors that I needed to know how to pick the right program, to write a statement of purpose. And the academy absolutely has a hidden curriculum. It's very difficult to crack from the outside. Um, it's even harder if you're first generation, if you come from a low income background, if you're a woman, if you're a black indigenous person of color, right? Like it just gets harder and harder. And so putting all that out there for free for everybody, like, yeah, that's a part of my hope to diversify the academy and to ensure that it reaches its potential to actually be an inclusive, just, and joyful place. Um, I believe so much in higher education and the magic that happens in the classroom with my students. Um, and so making that as accessible as possible has always been really important to me. That's very beautiful. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's, you know, so much I think in at least American culture is about elitism. And like you mentioned before about um, individualism and individual success that I just, I think it's wonderful and it's very refreshing um, to speak with anyone really who has found success and um, you're highly educated by your list of degrees, your many degrees. <laughs> Maybe too many. <laughs> <laughs> And your willingness to just share what you know and to put that out there for anyone that has, you know, technically internet access to access through you and through your site. Um, so, man, Emily, I, I'm so glad you could join us. Um, this interview has been a long time coming and I'm really anticipating your book coming out. This has been a conversation with Emily Contois, the author of her upcoming book, Diners, Dudes, and Diets, which we're all very excited for. Um, so if you want to find out more about her, she's on Instagram and Facebook as Emily Contois, and she also has a website under the same name. If you want to find out more about Sandy and I and our project here with this podcast called Femidish, we are on Instagram and Facebook as Femidish, and online 
Our website is www.femidish.com. That is F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H. So thank you everyone for joining us and thank you, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks everyone. Hanging out the towels We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over